Uh, we're in a series currently called What You Really Want, right? And how, and how to get what you, what you really want. And, and I've said previously that ultimately what you really want is summed up in one word, and that one word is peace. Everybody wants peace in every area of their life. And while there are many definitions for peace, the definition that we're using is this one right here. Peace is that inner state of calmness and tranquility that comes from knowing that God is. There is a God. God exists. He's real. And, he, and number two is God cares about us. He's not out there somewhere uh, unaware of what's going on. He knows every detail of every person's life and that God will keep his promises to us. Jesus said this, uh, not long before he left this earth, he was only here for 30 years, 33 years, a short period of time. John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace, I leave with you, my peace. He la he's leaving our peace, his peace with us. His peace is absolute peace with the Father because he is God and absolute knowledge that God always keeps his promises because Jesus is involved in that. So peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives because the world's peace is always uh, based on circumstances. And sometimes circumstances are good and sometimes circumstances are bad. But we can have peace in every circumstance. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And the theme of this, the theme principle of this series has been this one, the gift of peace comes from a right relationship with God. The gift of peace doesn't uh, come because you think you have everything under control or you think you have enough money in the bank or you think you have somebody that loves you because those things are up and down and they come and go. But the gift of peace comes from a right relationship with God. And here's the reason that's true. Number one, because we were designed and created by God. He's the one that put us together and designed us. He knows exactly what we need and so we can only be right and find peace when we do things the way God designed us to do them. We think that if I just do things my way, if things work out the way I want them to work out, that life will be better for me. But in fact, the, the way life gets better is when we do things the way God wants them to be done. And so a couple of Sundays ago, we got started in the first practical application of that principle, what you really want, which is Family peace, right? I mean, that's where it starts. If there's no peace in the family, there's no peace anywhere in job or anywhere else, right? So peace in the family. And if you can go back a couple of weeks for those of you who are here, the principle I really wanted you to remember from that first week is the fact that there is a tension that goes on in our lives between what's real and what is ideal. God says, here is the ideal way for a family to be. And we say, yeah, but it ain't that way with me. And there's a tension between the real and ideal. So the question is this, will we embrace a standard that many of us have or will fall short of? That is God's standard for the family. Uh, we've all fallen short of that standard somewhere along the line because there are no perfect families. But we take a look at that and we say, whoa, Ouch, I don't think I can do that, you know? So will we embrace a standard that many of us have, have failed or will fall short of, or will we take the other road? Will we redefine terms in order to feel better about where we are? Here's what's real. What's real is the fact that you're going through a divorce. What's real is that you're in your second marriage and that's not going so well uh, for you. What's real is that you're a newlywed 
It is not as easy, this marriage thing is not as easy as you thought it was going to be. What's real is that you've been married for a few years and you should have worked everything out and you're still fighting uh, with your spouse. What's real is that you have children. What's real is that you're trying to have children. What's real is that your children don't behave and they embarrass you. What's real is that you have a prodigal child that's giving you issues. What's real is that your husband won't come to church or your wife won't come to church. Now, I don't really know what's real in your life, but I know that there is a tension between what's real and what is ideal. And we've been talking about not giving up the ideal just because the real never quite works out to that. We live in a culture that wants to get rid of all that tension. You know, we, we can get rid of all the tension. We'll just say everything is okay. We'll just normalize everything. We live in a culture where every kid gets a trophy, right? Whether he wins or loses, whether every team is, gets a trophy, whether they win or lose anything. And even kids know there, there's no meaning to that whatsoever. In our culture, we don't want anybody to feel bad, right? It's just, we don't want to feel bad about anything. So it's, it, it's, it's normal. We're going to say it's normal to be dysfunctional. It's normal to, to, be, to get divorced. It's normal. So just don't feel bad about it. Uh, but something down inside of us goes, but it's not okay. But it, it's not okay. It's not okay. It hurts. And, and it doesn't work. And you know there's a reason for pain. We can't eliminate pain in this world. There's a reason for pain. Because pain warns us when we're in trouble. You put your hand on a hot stove, guess what? It hurts. And so you get it off of there as fast as you can. If you didn't feel the pain, you just leave your hand laying there until it burned off your body. There's a reason for pain. <clears throat> and and we, so we can't eliminate pain. We don't even want to totally eliminate pain from our culture. And when we think about our children, when I think about my grandchildren, we want something better for them than what's real for us. We're reminded there's a tension between the real and, and ideal. And, and we want the ideal of men and women who fall in love with each other and stay in love with each other and stay married for a lifetime. Everybody wants that. And, and, and we want the idea of kids who become well-adjusted, productive adults who serve God and, and they actually want to come home, not to live, but just to visit because they love their parents. And we want the idea of families that are really family-centered, you know, not, uh, even though they're splintered sometimes. And then Jesus comes along and he makes it painfully clear that, yeah, but there's a tension. There's a tension between what's real and ideal, but we can't give up on that ideal that we all want. And then when Jesus comes along, <clears throat> there was an ideal that existed before Jesus and he kind of jacks up the reality or the ideal of the situation. He says things like, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that any man that's looked at a woman in a lustful way has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And then he goes on and, and he talks about divorce and, and it being wrong. And, he, and he, he raises the standard in every other area, by the way. He said, you've, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You don't like it that way, right? Those people that are against us. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus just, he just, that standard just goes out of sight. 
And, and after he talked about marriage and divorce, his disciples, his closest followers said, then maybe nobody should ever get married because we can't do that. That's impossible. And Jesus said, look, I don't want you to let go of the ideal in light of what's real. I want you to live with that tension. It's important to have that intention, that tension. But I want you to live also with the satisfaction that God's grace is sufficient for you regardless of what the reality is in your life. God's grace is enough. But don't lose sight of the ideal because then we lose something that is very important. No one of us is perfect. Not one of us. Not one of us has a perfect family. Not a single one of us. But the farther we drift, if this is the ideal, the farther we drift away from the ideal, the greater the consequences become and the harder it is to get back to what we know is ideal. And so that's the context for this family piece part of this series. God has established the ideal. And there are consequences when we don't live up to the ideal, but it's never too late to start living toward, moving toward the ideal. For those of us who have decided to be Jesus followers, by the way, there's no option because Jesus said that's the way you have to do it. And so if we're going to follow him, we have to pursue the ideal. In fact, uh, according to the Apostle Paul in New Testament scripture, uh, we are called to be Christ's ambassadors, Christ's representatives on this earth. Uh, he, and he didn't leave us any option except telling people about Jesus and what Jesus wants in our lives. We have to live amidst the tension. Here's what Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Hmm, you didn't realize you were an ambassador, did you? As though God were making his appeal through us. It, it, when, when, when God uses us, it's though God is speaking to the world through us because he doesn't speak audibly to the world as though God were making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Get back on, get on God's team. Give your life to God. And then the message, verse 21, God made him, that, that him is Jesus, who had no sin. Jesus never sinned. He was born without sin. He lived his whole life without sin. He died on the cross for our sin, not for his sin. He resurrected on the third day. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's what God did. There's an ideal. We're never going to live up to it. And so Jesus came and died on the cross for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him God could look down upon us and see only the good of Jesus Christ when he sees us. So we point others, including our children and our grandchildren, toward Jesus and his standard of perfection, knowing that that we won't be able to make that standard in every area. We're gonna do better in some areas, we're gonna do worse in other areas. But we never lose sight of that ideal because then we lose sight of God and God's desires for us and the way God has designed us and the way we have to live if we wanna live a happy and fulfilled life. So, a couple of weeks ago, we said that if you take a look in the Bible and the Old Testament, you don't find very many examples of good families. They're mostly messed up uh, families in the Old Testament. But then there are some great teachings, at least, about the family in the New Testament, about what families are supposed to do. And we looked at four things, right? Husbands, love your wives. 
and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Really? Are you sure all those things are supposed to be on the list right there? Yep, that's what a Christian family looks like. What we have to do is decide if we're going to normalize our failures and live with, or if we're going to live with the tension and shoot for what God has planned. Now, today we're going we're to tackle the most difficult of those four things, the most politically incorrect. Which one would it be? Well, it's obvious, right? It's obvious. Wives, submit to your husband. There's not a more, I don't know if we can make a, a more politically incorrect statement than that particular statement. A few weeks ago, by the way, I was sitting around the table with a group of guys. And uh, one of the guys who does not attend church here, and I, a couple of you might know who he is, but most of them would not. One of the guys was bragging about his second wife and how submissive she was and how she never contradicted him, never wanted anything except what he wanted and the only argument they'd ever had uh, in their short marriage was when he asked her where she wanted to go to dinner and she wouldn't say, she just wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. Now, I try not to preach. When I'm out with a group of guys, I don't preach because when you do that, nobody wants you to come anymore. You know? So I try, I try not to preach a lot when I'm out with a group like that. Uh, but I felt like maybe I should say something. And so I said, well, I have a wife and she has an opinion on a whole lot of things, most things. And she, ex she feels free to express her opinion on most things. But if we reach an impasse, now an impasse is when you're crossed on something and you do everything you can to come to an agreement and you can't. Sometimes that happens, right? She has agreed that when we reach an impasse that she chooses to follow me of her own free will, not because I can force her to do anything. His response to me was, haven't you ever read her that verse that says, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands? I was glad at that moment that Jean wasn't there because I, I don't want to have to visit with her in prison for the rest of our, <laughs> of our married life, you know. But I realized very quickly that this guy did not understand what the Apostle Paul meant by that statement. Because this is an extremely important teaching in Scripture, and because of this, this fact, it is a specific application I guess I, I guess I missed something, right? That's, that's the title of the sermon, by the way. You're not the boss of me. I, I skipped over that. Uh, what, and the subtitle of that is, what can I do to help you? And now we come to the principle I was talking about. It's a specific application to women. This wives submit yourself to your own husbands is a specific application to women of a principle that's given to everyone, not just to some people. We all are commanded to submit to each other. So we move on to this thing that is the most controversial New Testament teaching concerning marriage. And so let's read it. Ephesians chapter five and verse 22. 
the Apostle Paul wrote, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, I want you to note that that verse is not addressed to men. That God never says to men, guys, you make sure that woman does what you tell her to do. That's nowhere in Scripture. This is, this is a commandment given to women. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Paul had something else to say to men uh, a little bit later. He said, husbands, love your wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church and sacrificed his life for the church. But here's the environment that Jesus established during his ministry. Jesus spoke on a lot of topics and he stood up to the religious leaders of his time and he stood up for what was right and he stood against what was wrong. But everything for him was through the filter of love. John 13, 35, he said this, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And when he was asked uh, what is the greatest of all the commandments in Matthew's gospel, chapter 22, verse 37, he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, while holding to truth, Jesus always treated sinners with love. And that's hard. That's tough. Only Jesus can do that perfectly. We are very imperfect with that. But while holding to truth, Jesus always treated sinners with love. So the apostles, the guys who wrote the New Testament, followed Christ and applied his principles to these new churches, to these new assemblies of Christians or these new ecclesias. And that alleged male chauvinist, the worst of all male chauvinists, the apostle Paul, said this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Jew or non-Jew, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we're all exactly the same. In Jesus, we are all exactly equal. So how were these guys going to apply these principles to the family? Well, to the wives who had a newfound freedom that they'd never had before in that culture, a new status as Christians, Paul was led by God to say, Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. But the teaching about submission actually begins the verse before that. In Ephesians 5.21, Scripture says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that leads us to the overarching principle to which we're all responsible, and that's this, the principle of mutual submission. We're all required to put the other person above ourselves. For everyone who wants to follow the principles of Christ in the family, Everybody is to submit to everybody else in the family. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, mothers, submit to each other. Ephesians 5.21, let's read that verse again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we don't submit to each other because we're worth being submitted to. We submit to each other because Jesus is worth being submitted to. We submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. 
Not because your husband is the greatest guy in the world or not because your mother is the greatest woman in the world, although we often feel that. This should be the driving force behind Christian families, this whole idea of mutual submission. I live for you, not for me. Submission means that I'm going to leverage everything I have. I'm going to leverage my assets, my time, my power for your benefit. Whether I'm the father, the mother, the sister, the brother, the grandfather, or the grandmother. After all, that's what Jesus did, right? He put us before himself in every way, before his feelings, before his health, before his wealth, and then he died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He's God. And he's way above us in every way. And yet he put himself below us to die for us. Jesus taught the principle of mutual submission to his followers. Now, he didn't talk about husbands and wives, but he said this in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. Who's number one? Everybody wanted to know who's number one. And when you set up your kingdom and you rule in the world, who gets to be number two right beside you? And Jesus said, whoever serves others the most, not who, not who gets ever, everybody to serve him, but whoever serves others the most. And he illustrated that principle. It's recorded in, in John's gospel, chapter 13, uh, on the evening that he was betrayed and before they had the Passover supper, they all showed up for supper that night and you know, you get the Passover meal and then they had the Lord's Supper communion that was instituted. And we have to go back in time a little bit because these guys would all take a bath before they went to dinner. Uh, they had these robes on and they didn't wear socks, of course, and they wore sandals and they walked on dirty, dusty, sometimes dirt roads, but certainly dirty, dusty roads. And so they get to dinner and then the table was really low to the ground, not high table. So everybody's had to sit at this low table with their feet kind of out to the side or, uh, you know, cross-legged or something of that nature, but your feet were right up close to everybody eating your dinner, and you'd just been out walking on the dirty road. And what happened at most dinner parties is that there was a, a servant who would wash everybody's feet before they sat down. The rest of them were clean, but the servant would wash everybody's feet. That way, you didn't have to worry about somebody's stinky feet in your face while you're eating supper, right? And so they showed up for the meal that, that, that night and nobody washed anybody's feet because they were all too good for that, right? Hey, I want to be first. No, I want to be first. I want to be first. Well, I want to be first. Everybody want to be first. And Jesus went and got a, ba a basin of water and he tied a towel around him and he went around and he washed everybody's feet. And he concluded with these words, John 13, verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, I'm way up here, hmm? so, Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. Now, they already knew something funny was going on because he's going around washing each other's feet, and he has a really interesting conversation with Peter as he's going around the table. But he washes everybody's feet, and he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now he says, nobody's better than anybody else around here. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you put yourself down and serve other people. Verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. This is perhaps the most powerful dynamic in any relationship. I'm going to use my influence and I'm going to use my power, not for me, but for you, family, neighborhood, business, nation, all leaders, all leaders, from the president to the king to the emperor to everybody, 
All leaders are supposed to lead for the benefit of the followers, not for their own good. All followers are supposed to follow for the benefit of others. In the family, that means, Ephesians 5.21, again, let's read it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The message of mutual submission is this. I'm here for you rather than being here for me. That's very countercultural, isn't it? Regardless of where we fall in the hierarchy of family, hierarchy means the order of authority and power. Regardless of where we fall in the hierarchy of family, whether it's father, mother, child, third born, second born, 18th born, first born, doesn't matter. Here's what I'm here for. I'm here to leverage who I am and what I have for your benefit, which leads us to the question of mutual submission. We can put the principle to work by regularly, at least one time each day, asking a simple question. And before, oh, it's up there. What is the question? What can I do to help you? Simple question, right? The question of mutual submission. What can I do? How can I use who I am and what I have to serve you? How can I use what I am and what I have to help you? How can I use what I am and what I have to make your life better? If each person in the family would ask each other person in the family that question every day, you have a better family. We know that. I don't do that, by the way. I try, you know, if I'm thinking about it, I do. But I don't do that all the time. Kids, regardless of your age, what if you ask that par your parents that question, what can I do to help you? What can I do to make your life easier? I, yeah, they pass out, I understand that, but uh, wouldn't it be great? Uh, even if they knew you just heard it at church, wouldn't it be great if they said that to you? Maybe, maybe you could do it while they're amongst their friends. You know, they got their friends over and you walk in amongst all the adults and say, mom, what can I do to help you to make your life better? Parents, depending on what stage of parenting you're in, things can get rough. They can get really, really negative. Raising kids is the hardest job in the entire universe. Raising them successfully, it's easy to pass them off and let somebody else raise them. But raising them yourself is very difficult. But probably at least once every, each day, each parent should say, what can I do to help you? Give me a million dollars. Let me do whatever I want to do. What can I pray with you about? Most of the time, you know the answer you're going to get? Nothing. Nothing. But you ask. And maybe sometimes they give an answer. Ladies, wives, girlfriends, fiancés, getting ready to get married. Women. It's a very powerful question to ask a man. What can I do? To help you. Most of the time, the answer you're going to get is nothing. Right? Most of the time, just being real. Now, I mean, if you ask your wife, you're going to get an answer, okay? But there's not going to be nothing. But men and children, we just don't say nothing, nothing. And men, you are sort of the leader in your family. We're going to talk about that more later, but God has placed you, God has said you are the head of your family and the spiritual leader of your family. And because that, of that, it's very powerful, uh, the, that dynamic, it's very powerful for you to say to your wife or your kids, what can I do to help you? 
What can I do to make your life easier today? Fathers and husbands, we have such a great opportunity to build up our families with that simple question. I've heard some of you ask that question before because it's not the first time we ever talked about it. What can I do to help you? But, but there's something, there's something that stands between us that keeps us from asking that question. Maybe there's more than one thing. The barrier to submission is this. The barrier to submission is fear. Now, maybe there's some pride involved in there, too. But uh, if I ask mom, what can I do to help you? I'm liable to end up pulling weeds or washing dishes or washing the car. I don't want to do that. If you ask anybody that question, somebody might take advantage of you. You know, and ask you to do something they should be doing themselves. You might lose some of your power. You might, not, you might not have your prestige anymore. You might not look as good as you used to look. That fear of asking that question, what can I do to help you, is why Ephesians 5, 21 is so important. There in verse again, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not because we deserve being submitted to, but out of reverence to Christ. Jesus is our example in everything. And I re realize we say very much we're humanizing him, but think about this. There's a sense in which God looked at the world and saw the mess down here. You know, wow, what a mess this world is. And Jesus said, Father, what can I do to help you? And he came to this earth and he died on the cross and he paid the price of our sin and he rose again the third day and it wasn't because we were worth it. It was because of his love. And so Paul says, out of reverence for Christ, make yourself available. You're not that good. You're not that important. You're not that worthwhile. You're not so much better than anybody else is. None of us are. What can I do to help you? And yes, Somebody may take advantage of you. And yes, you may have to be number two instead of number one. And yes, you may not get everything done that you wanted to get done that day. But welcome to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. What can I do to help you? Out of reverence and gratitude for what Jesus has done for you, do the same for others. After he had washed the, the feet of the, the, the 12 guys that came to dinner that night, he said, now you, seen what I do, you go and do the same thing for others. And here's the good news. The vast majority of the time, it's not gonna cost you your life like it cost him. It may cost you a little time, a little energy, a little money, a little sweat, a little frustration. It might cost you a little of your mind every once in a while. But ask the question and risk yourself for the sake of Christ, and it's a risk. When you ask that question and you mean it, 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 there is a risk involved. But it's the key to having a great family. Happiness doesn't come by getting everybody to do what you want them to do. We think, boy, if I could just get everybody to, I, I, I'm smarter than everybody else is. If I could just get everybody to do it the way I'm telling them to do it, everything would be fine. No, it wouldn't be. Would not be. Absolutely would not be. Happiness especially in the family, is not in getting everybody to do things your way. It's in mutual submission and everybody caring about the other people. So 
the question arises, does this mean that nobody is in authority in the family? That we just all sit around going, going, well, no, you first. No, you first. Well, no, I, I don't. No, you go first. I No, no you go first, babe. No, no, you go first. It uh, no, doesn't mean that at all, does it? Somebody, somebody has to be in charge. And there is an order. There is a hierarchy in the family. And it's not about who has the authority, but it's about what do you do with the authority that you have. Under the general subject of mutual submission, Paul wrote this to wives, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's evidently what women needed to hear in the atmosphere of their equality in Jesus Christ. But even when there's equality, there has to be a hierarchy of authority. Now, Jean is here, and a lot of times I'm preaching, she's not even in here, so that what I say today, she's my witness. But here is a summary of how it works in the Jim and Jean Harris home. Doesn't always work this way. <laughs> It is our ideal, but it's what we work for. Jean, from the beginning of our marriage, has voluntarily, voluntarily submitted to my leadership, choosing never to state her opinion or inject herself in any way into the leadership process or question me at all. You can laugh if you like to, if you know us, right? First part of that's true. First part of that's true. Jean has voluntarily submitted to my leadership since the beginning of our marriage. The rest of it is just pure nonsense. It has nothing to do with husbands and wives and the way families should go. Uh, we are absolutely and mutually committed to each other. I knew that I knew that before we ever got married, that we were absolutely and mutually committed to each other. So you could you can't know that. Well, maybe not. But I thought I did anyway, and I saw a difference in her in our relationship than anything I had ever seen before. And with us, there was no, let's give it a try and see how it works out. If it don't work, we'll just try somebody else. No, that was never, never in the equation at all. We were absolutely, from the time that we got engaged, absolutely committed to each other and to remaining together for the rest of our lives. We decided long ago that divorce was not an option. It, not the first time it had ever been said, but the first time anybody ever said to me, divorce is not an option, but murder is, is when Jean said it to me. She chooses to recognize my overall leadership. And I say this in her presence, she likes it better that way. In a practical sense, what happens is that we each lead in the areas of our ability in the family. When we first got married, I've used this illustration several times, but it's a good one. Jean handled the finances. She kept the checkbook and, you know, back when you had a checkbook you had to keep up with, no electronic banking or anything. She kept the checkbook. Uh, and when it became apparent that, that she could not the, take the pressure involved in that, by that I mean we never had enough money, money to do anything with because I never made very much money. And so 
when it became apparent that she couldn't handle that, I took over because I could handle the pressure better and because I have more mathematical ability, and so that became my, part, my department. But, but Jean is the, we call it the household manager for one thing. She plans the food. Now she asks me, what do you want to eat? And uh, I'll say, just something that's really good. <laughs> so, uh, but what do you, you know, uh, and she plans the cleaning. I vacuum the floor. Some doesn't mean I do it all, but she plans all that out and the designing of the house and the decorating of the house. And I paint the walls, but, you know, I try to go with her color, whatever it is that she wants. When it came to having children, I said, whatever you want. You know, have children, don't have children. What, what you want. And that was her choice. And when there is an impasse, when we come to a situation where we're crossed over something and, and we do our best to work it out, we pray about it, we talk about it, you know, we, we, we go off in our own ways, we come back and we work on it, we go off our own ways, we come back and we work on it. When there's an impasse, we've decided that I make the final decision and that she will follow me. Now, sometimes my final decision is whatever you want. You know, husband, father, if you feel that God has called you to be the head of your home, then be the head of your home in the same way that Christ is the head of the church and gave himself for us, gave up his life, sacrificed himself for us. Just remember that you lead not for your own good, not for your own power, not to look good among the other guys. but for the good of your family. Leadership involves authority, and leadership involves responsibility, but it's not about power. It's not about showing who's the most powerful. You should ask the question, if you're the leader, you should ask the question more than anybody else does, hey, what can I do for you right now? And then do it. Mean it and do it. Remember that Jesus is our ultimate example. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, I say again, you have no option but to do things the Jesus way. Now, here's the way, here's the Jesus way. Romans chapter five, verse six, Jesus said this, or it says about Jesus. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That'd be you and me. Right? At just the right time, at exactly the right time, when we needed him the most, he died to pay the price of our sin. Not when it was convenient for him. No excuses from him like, oops, sorry, you know, I was late. I, I didn't mean to do that. Or, yeah, somebody let me down, so I had to let you down. No, but at just the right time, when we need him the most, what can I do for you? He came and died on the cross for us. Verse 7 says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's exactly what Jesus did. Imagine what it would be like if everybody in the family used their time, talent, treasure, uh, everything, their resources for other people in the family. That's what it looks like when everybody comes together committed in mutual submission, we ask the question, what can I do to help you? Even if you don't really mean it, ask it and do it. A lot of times I don't feel like doing the right thing. 
I know you feel the same way. Sometimes I just want to do the wrong thing. Feels better to do the wrong thing. Do the right thing. What can I do to help you? And, and remember this, the last thing. When you want to ask it least, that's when you need to ask it most. What can I do to help you? Husbands, wives, parents, children, grandparents, grandchildren, what can I do to help you? Father in heaven, what can we do to be like you? What can we do to help each other? Give us that wisdom, give us that grace, give us that submissive spirit. In Jesus' name.